Lebel to the right hand, puts her down. He's going to dump him hard to the ice. Brady Lebel just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. 911, where's your emergency? Someone overdosed? What's the address? I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Wazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Lebel, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. What I'm meant to do. Struck on your page, you can follow me too. What is going on? Welcome, Hockey to Hell and Back episode. Number 116. This is a good jam. Chad Campbell, Hockey to Hell and Back, available on Spotify. Thanks for joining the show. If you're watching live, if you're listening after, wherever you're taking it in, thank you so much. Big day today. Big day. Couple things. Three years ago on this day, I was released from jail. For the final time, because I don't plan to go back. Three years. Wow. A lot's happened in three years, and a lot of that started right here on this show. So thank you to everyone who supported me. And 
one of those who supported me really early on and supported what was then a dream called Puck Support. It is also Dave Gilmore's 72nd birthday today. And two years ago, on this day, on his 70th birthday, alongside his son, Brandon Killer Gilmore, MMA fighter, good friend of mine now. I'd never met them in person before. Of course, Dave is Doug Gilmore's older brother, Hockey Hall of Famer, Doug. Well, he wanted to do something on his 70th birthday. He wanted to ride his bicycle 50 kilometers and run another 20, 70 kilometers on his 70th birthday, doing a small local fundraiser in their hometown of Kingston, Ontario. I think they raised close to $3,000 and they raised that money for puck support and they sent it to me and they said, Brady, you can do whatever you want with this money. We know it's not enough to start the charity that you want. I was calling lawyers. It was $10,000 they were asking for and I didn't even have $10. I was on welfare. My life was a mess, but I had a dream and, and he sent me this money and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, to be honest. It was a big responsibility for me taking money from somebody because all I did in my addiction was take and take and take. And I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something right with it. And at first I thought I would get a professional video made about what puck support could be. And you know, what an impact mental health and addiction has already left in the hockey community, leaving behind so many just tragedies. But I thought once that movie's done, then what? So I took to YouTube figured out how to make a clothing line. I ordered a heat press and a vinyl cutter and designed some logos and hacked my way into what is the puck support clothing line, which originally started in the basement at Matt Thompson's house. And now of course is at Susan Cook's house. But listen, if Dave doesn't raise that initial money, I have no idea where we're at. We are now also a nonprofit aside from the clothing line. A lot has happened in two years. But I didn't know Dave Gilmore. But he saw my story and I guess he was inspired by it. In fact, his whole family, aside from his hockey hall of famer brother, the whole family was jail guards. So, Dave, thank you. I love you and happy birthday. You have no idea how much that changed my life. And I can confidently sit here and say it has changed the lives of others too because of what we've been able to do with it. So thank you. And uh, I'll never, ever forget it. I got lots more to say, but I want to bring my friend Keegan in here because he's got some stuff to say. So without further ado, it is, uh, you know, before I bring him in here, I'll just mention his company, Mindful Meds, and we're going to talk quite a bit about it talked a little bit about it on this show. I've kind of been waiting for the right time, but what an impact you guys have heard me talk about and countless other hockey players talk about how microdosing uh, mushrooms, not just psilocybin, but different kinds of mushrooms and different even plant medicines have impacted their lives for the, for the better, uh, which is sort of out of the box thinking not too long ago. But it's guys like Keegan who have stepped up and not only helped me, you know, and introduced me to it and helped me on my journey uh, but he's also out there educating and breaking down barriers and also finding his own way. So without further ado, uh, I'm really happy to introduce you guys, my buddy, Keegan Downer. There he is. Hey. What's going on, buddy? Welcome. 
Thank you, man. Love the uh, love the intro, and I gotta say, it's been it's been amazing following your journey and and watching um, Puck's support blossom, uh, your podcast blossom, what you're doing working with kids. Um, I haven't watched all the episodes, but I, I've I've seen parts of many of them, and um, man, I love catching um, your podcast when I can. It comes on here where I am in the Pacific Coast at five o'clock, so it's always a great time for me. And I know for you and I, like we've been trying to get this organized for a while. And so I'm just grateful to be here. I'm grateful to, to have an opportunity to come and hopefully share a bit of my story, a bit, a bit of the history of the company and, and um, why I'm doing the work that I'm doing today. Yeah. And, and thank you for those kind words, man. It's been, it's been interesting trying to take compliments like that. I'm still not doing well at it because in my mind, I, I know there's just always so much more to do. There's so much more work to do, right? And that maybe is part of my own mental health that I need to work on to just be able to settle down. But thank you for those kind words. And and honestly, thank you for all that you've done. And and yeah, this has been a, a long time coming, but I've never been more sure of in my life that things happen at the right time uh, for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to, to getting to know you a little bit better on here because we've been kind of going back and forth for it feels like feels like a long time, but I think it's been a year and a half, maybe two years, not even. And um you know, a lot's happened for, for both of us in that time. But I'm just, like I said, so happy that you're here. And maybe you could start with, you know, a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to the people watching, people listening. Sure. Um, just also wanted to say congrats on a thousand days. What an accomplishment that is, man. Um, and three years out of jail today. Um, let's hopefully make this a great episode, man. Um, yeah, so my name is Keegan. Um, I, I used to introduce myself as saying I used to have this incredible life and just along the way when I was 22 one night really changed the trajectory of the next kind of nine years of my life and now I, I look at it a little bit differently I I am somebody that spent about nine years of my life addicted to alcohol and you know I, I, I'm more than happy to share that story with you guys and, and, and kind of let you know how it started and how it ended and, and where it's at today um, but the reality is, is like, I, I had a really tough time trying to understand how I became an addict and because, yeah, I was, I was 22 years old and my, you know, the trajectory of where my life was going was exactly where I wanted it to be. And like I just mentioned one night, you know, changed the next nine or 10 years of my life. And it was completely my fault. Um, and maybe I just get into the story. I, I mean, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind, do you mind sharing what that, what that was? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, um, yeah, I was going into my, I was just about to transfer into my third year of university. I had just finished two years at the college doing a business diploma and was loving it. I did. I really didn't think there was anything that was going to get me in the way of getting my degree. And I had been dating a girl for, for, I don't know, three or four years at that time. And, it was certainly rocky at times and, and I think it all worked out the way it was supposed to. Um, but the reality is, is yeah, we, she went home, I was going to school in Lethbridge and, and I'm from Calgary. And, um, and so it's only about a two and a half hour drive to, to the university campus. Lots of people from Calgary, lots of my high school friends were out there and, um, and it was a great little town. We had, we had a blast out in Lethbridge, but yeah, one night I was working at a restaurant and I had uh, the whole staff back to my place for a party afterwards. And, um, and I cheated on my, my ex, my, on a, on a, you know, during a one night stand. And 
honestly, man, the guilt that came from that and the shame and the way that I, you know, I, I was hiding the, the, you know, the truth as to what actually happened, um, it really fucked me up to be honest. And, and so I kept that a secret for about an entire year. So I guess I was, yeah, I was 22 at this time. And, um, by the time we, we actually broke up, it was about a year later. Um, and I just remember, you know, you know, just feeling just so guilty about what I had done. And, and we shared this big group of friends together and both of my sisters were friends with her. And, um, I don't know, I was, I was kind of in this culture, you know, this is way back in 2000 and, I believe, um, where it seemed like everybody was doing this, you know, a lot of my friends that were athletes and hockey players and, you know, and girls and guys, I suppose, were, were cheating on their, their partners. And then, you know, finally I was kind of one of the last people to do it and it absolutely destroyed me. And so that's kind of when I started leaning into alcohol a little bit. And I, it was, it was more in the beginning of just trying to get away from the thoughts in my head and kind of the pain in, in, in regards to, you know, oh, my God, what have I done? And um, and so, yeah, a year went by. Um, she I think she had an idea. But like the reality is, is I was still kind of hiding it. I guess alcoholism was just kind of creeping in the shadows at this point. And uh, I remember going back to to England where my father it was from. He's actually Irish, but. Um, I spent a lot of time in the UK as a kid. My dad moved to the UK when I was in grade one. And maybe get into that a little bit during this as, as well, because, you know, my whole, you know, the last several years, I've been trying to reverse engineer how the fuck I became an addict. And it's been really, really challenging me, you know, challenging for me to try to figure out. And just even recently within the last year, I think I've I've got some new insight as to how this all happened. And, and, um, and so maybe I'll share a bit of that too. I would love that. I haven't shared any of that on any other podcast so far. I, I think that can I hop in for a second? Yeah, I think absolutely. That, like, please, yeah, share that if you're comfortable sharing that, because that, you know, that's, that's so important, right? I just wanted to stop you for a sec because that, you know, you're really looking to go back and, and then often, right. We have to go back and I can definitely relate to you with the story you just talked talked about i did the same thing to my high school sweetheart when i was away playing hockey in swift current she found out we broke up my life was over i did not care about anything i went down the path i was drinking a lot then i got into the drugs so i you know you're not alone there and then that's really is a big part of what set me on that path not really knowing that my past childhood trauma also played a part in that. So I'm just, I please share that with us. Cause I think that's such a key piece. Sorry to cut you off. Keith. Yeah, no worries, man. I mean, it's why don't, why don't I tell the story just, just where I left off and then I'll circle it back to that because you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I was fascinated about how this all happened. Um, and, but yeah, the reality is, is so when I was in grade six, my parents, uh, or excuse me, when I was in grade one, I was six years old five years old, turning six. Um, yeah, my parents went through a divorce and I remember my dad, um, he moved to Edmonton. My mom was living in Calgary and every second weekend I'm up in Edmonton seeing my father with my older sister, Kaylee. And, um, and one of the things that they did was they actually put me into grade one super young. So I was five years old. And in fact, I was the youngest graduate in my high school class in 2002. So I was the youngest kid to graduate from my high school. Actually, there was kids that were a year younger than me that were older than me. 
And so I got put into this class way too early. And at, at about the same time, my dad decided to go back to England. And so he kind of, you know, I, I there, there's a lot of abandonment stuff that, that, that kind of comes with addiction. And generally, there's lots of shame that comes along with it. And so one of the newest discoveries for me was just how big of an event this really was for me as a kid. And so, yeah, so my dad takes off to, to go back to England. Um, I'm six years old. And then every single summer from grade two to the year after high school, my sister and I went to England for the entire summer. So I spent six to seven weeks every single summer in the UK. And, you know, it was kind of amazing at times because I had kind of two lives. I had my life here in Canada in Calgary with my mom and my stepdad, um, which was, you know, full of rules. And um, my mom really did a, a great job as a role model and, and, and set us up very well as kids. And then every summer we'd hop on this plane and go to England and the roof would blow off. There was no fucking rules. My father didn't believe in rules. Um, and he, he really allowed us to do whatever we wanted for the entire summer, which included waking up and having a Coca-Cola for breakfast and eating ice cream. And, um, and so, but, but then, you know, soon enough, we found out that my dad also had a drinking problem. And so, you know, it didn't take long. Maybe we were, you know, in grade two, three, four, we started noticing that my dad would change quite a little bit, you know, quite a bit in the evenings. And he was sneaking, um, he was pretending to drink cups of tea, but instead of tea, you know, we'd look over the side of the bed and it would be full of red wine. And so that started really young. So like my dad had this drinking problem and the reality is, is my dad, uh, his dad had the drinking problem and it, and it goes way back in, in my DNA and, and several of my aunts have drinking problems on that side. Um, but really, you know, that's that piece of, you know, that, that abandonment and then, you know, that DNA piece of that generational trauma piece that was kind of passed along just really briefly. I'll just, give a synopsis of my father. So he was the oldest of, of six. He had five sisters, uh, grew up in Ireland. And, um, and he was sexually assaulted by his uncle when he was a kid. And he was viciously beaten by my, by my grandpa. Um, really was just trained to, to fight. Like it was just that Irish blood. He, he was trained to protect his sisters and, uh, and fight off those boyfriends. And, and uh, the reality is, is, by the time he was 14 years old, he had enough. He dropped out of school, I think, when he was in grade eight, going into grade nine, and left Ireland on a boat and ended up in, in London and actually lived homeless on the streets of London from 14 to 18 years old. And he was crazily enough saved by this church group that came by and just offered some support. They saw him and... Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's my dad's story is remarkable. And, you know, since I became an addict, I was I walked through his shoes of being an addict and being depressed and having anxiety and and um, and can certainly relate to to the pain that he was going through. And because I, I walked through those footsteps, I was able to forgive my dad before he passed away just a couple of years ago, ironically passed away on on Bell Mental Health Day of all days. Um. But yeah, he, he ended up getting his life saved and, and he moved in with this, this couple, this church group and their family. And, um, 
and crazy enough, they're still alive today. My my mom, or sorry, my sister, when he passed away a couple of years ago, was able to reach out to this couple, and they really confirmed all of the stories that my dad used to tell us. And and um, it was pretty amazing to hear from them and, and hear about you know the rules that they had laid out for him. And um, and one of them was he had to go back to high school and graduate, and so he did that. And then after that, he ended up going back to university and over time ended up getting his master's in, um, in psychology. And to be honest with you, spent most of his career building social programs for the disadvantaged. And, um, and in the end, to be honest with you, he relied on one of the programs that he created in England. Um, but he had, you know, quite a legacy over there of helping other people and, you know, it was really sad to see him pass away. I believe he was 67 a couple of years ago um, because he he had helped so many people with their problems, but was never able to help himself. And so he died with all of his trauma locked inside of him. And ultimately what we know about trauma today is if we don't heal it and speak about it, which is, which is why I'm here tonight to share a bit of my story, you know, it, it comes back in, in mysterious ways. And oftentimes it comes back as disease. And, uh, and ultimately that's what happened to, to my father. But, you know, about a year after he passed away, my sisters and I got a letter from the NHS, which is the national, the national health services in the UK. And it was a letter from the president. And she spoke about the social systems that my father put together and the impact that he made over his career. And, um, he had quite the legacy. And, and to be honest with you, it's probably one of the reasons that I'm doing the work that I'm doing today. I'm really just following the footsteps, you know, of of my father. Um, But yeah, so so you asked about some of those early traumas. You know, I had no idea that this was a thing for me. But the reality is, is, um, you know, we're going to get to, you know, when I when I went into rehab for the first time in 2016. um, And maybe we don't just jump ahead to that. Why don't I just share a bit of the story about the the collapse and then the the comeback, I suppose. Do you yeah, have any yeah, before, before? before you do that, yeah. I just want to, like, man, like I'm sitting here, I'm listening, I'm captivated because I'm relating a lot to that too, because, you know, I've been out there kind of speaking and sharing my story and I talk a little bit about my trauma. And I think oftentimes in my story, it gets highlighted the fact that I was sexually abused. But a big part of my story is also the fact that my parents divorced right before that, not divorced, but separated where my dad became the single dad and those abandonment issues and everything else. So, yeah. right, like it, it we, I think it takes, it took me a long time to have to be, or to be able to reflect on that instance too, to understand how much it's played a part in my life too, with, you know, my relationships and the way that I'm with the way that I've been, the way that I am and, and everything else. So I just wanted to stop there and take a second uh, to, to get there. And I really appreciate your, your honesty and your, your vulnerability here, because that's how we, that's how we can get through to people. And that's when the conversations really mean, you know, something and people can take something from it. So thanks Keegs. Um, also the dad, no rules thing, right? I just told you my dad was a single dad, great yeah. dad unbelievable dad but i had very few rules you know like no curfew at 12 you know i'm gone out and you know my dad's probably listening is going oh whatever just the way that it was because he was so exhausted so you know doing his own thing and everything else that it was just easier just to say oh here and coke in the morning ice cream it's not that he was giving it to me it's just that i was able to do those things so a lot of the you know relatability there for me anyways so i wanted to just jump in there and, and say that so but yeah i would love to hear kind of about 
if you if that's where you're headed is you know at 22 all this stuff happens and that trajectory and kind of like what kind of like what that looks like in the progression and when you kind of started to understand that maybe you did in fact have a problem and how long did it take you after that to actually seek help for the first time yeah all good questions. I'm going to throw one other piece into this that you do whatever you I've want. Please. Never ever dropped on a podcast before. In fact, I I literally thought I was going to the grave with this. And just a year ago, told Elisa, who's my fiance, we've been together for a decade. This little piece. And so here I am. My dad's now going off to England. I'm way too young to be in grade one. And um, and right away, I am not. I'm not as smart as the other kids. I'm in this class, like looking over people's shoulders going, holy fuck, what's the answer to this? I can physically remember one of my first memories looking over someone's shoulder. And so I got through grade one and in grade two, um, I had developed this way of um, using my dad's kind of abandonment to my advantage. I, I, I got, you know, I was able to kind of act out in class I was able to get away with certain things. I was able to get empathy and sympathy from, from teachers. And I was using it basically as, as a tool of manipulation, which is the way I look at it now. Um, but what ended up happening is, is about halfway grade through grade two, I can remember being in class and, get, and getting this tap on my shoulder. And this woman who I've never seen before was just like, hey, you need to come with me. And, and they took me to the library and they, and they gave me this extensive um test and they wanted to see if that if i was smart enough to continue in the regular curriculum and um and and i was terrified i was like holy fuck i don't, I don't want to be pulled out of class and, and and made to feel differently than other people and i certainly didn't think i had a learning disability but i did know that i was behind the other kids because of my age and um and as it turns out i, I must have failed that test whatever test it was and, um, and so they diagnosed with me in grade two with a learning disability. And that was something that to this day, as I said, it was something that I've never really spoken about. My friends, some of my family are going to have no idea. They'll be hearing this for the first time. And, and yeah, so grade three and four, I spent half my time in this, this like other class where I was really, I, I really shouldn't have been. I never felt that I, I should have been there. And luckily in grade five, my parents bought a new house on the other side of the city. And, um, and I actually ended up going to England for six months and doing half a grade five in England. And by the time I got back, I was in this new school. They ran a test again and I had, I had managed to catch up at that point. And so this was somewhat buried. They, they did come and do more testing on me in grade six once more. And then once more in grade seven, and I can remember when they came to do it in grade seven, you can remember going to, to junior high for the first time and you, you don't want to be any different than anybody else, right? Like you, you just yeah. want to be treated the exact same. And so at that point, I remember going into one of their testing centers and, and, uh, and coming out and saying, listen, guys, this is the last time I'm ever doing this. I never, ever want this to come up again. And so at some capacity, I buried these things. I, I just, I put them down deep, deep in my subconscious, pretended like they never happened. But, you know, I'm, I'm finding out later as a 37 year old that these things that we stuff away and hide and um, can really be big, you know, trauma pockets that we need to explore. And if we keep them hidden and, and we don't talk about them, 
um, it can be the catalyst for things like addiction and, and, and relapse. Yeah. And um, so that just gives you a bit of a background. Uh, why don't we fast forward now to yeah. me going to university? I'm in my third year and um, we're actually back at my dad's place at this point over Christmas holidays. And, um, and I get a call and, and it's from my ex and she goes, I've just gone and seen this really happened. You know, one of the top psychics in, uh, in Canada, her parents were quite wealthy. Her dad owned an oil and gas company and, and um, they used to have their house feng shui all the time. And, and I guess in one of the notes and when this feng shui person came by, they had mentioned for her not to go buy big bodies of water. And I think this was 2005 and she was just about to go to school in Vancouver. And so her parents wanted her to go see the psychic to see what this note was all about. Turns out the psychic knew everything about me and found out, you know, that I had cheated that night. And, and um, that's really how I got, you know, outed for this for this infidelity was was through the psychic and thank god i did because i was holding on to this thing forever man and it was eating me alive and so she just gave me a chance she's just like well you know did this happen and i i just thought it was finally time to free myself of it and um and so i did and and of course it turned out that you know we broke up right away and um and that's when it started for me the real depression the real anxiety, the real hopelessness. Um, so yeah, I go back from this trip to England. Now I'm transferred into, into the university in my third year. And I remember going to classes for the first month and I, I literally, I couldn't keep my head off my shoulders. I couldn't listen to anything. I, I literally couldn't learn. I, I, I didn't have the ability to, um, I, I was in this bubble of depression and, um, and so for the first time ever, I, I really understood what depression and anxiety was. And, um, really for me, the only way to combat it was to, to drink. And so within 30 days, I am now dropped out of university. Um, I had started drinking really just in the evenings with some friends and then started drinking with some people that I didn't even really know. And um, really, for the first time in my life, I'm on, you know, on a three month bender. And, uh, and it happened fast, man. It happened really fast. Um, so fast that like, you know, after the three months, I was, I wouldn't say at that point, I was fully physically addicted. But I, I was certainly, I, I would have considered myself an alcoholic at that point. And, you know, this came from a year before I was, <clears throat> I was on top of the world. I was the rookie of the year in my sales job with, with my company. Um, they had invited me back the next year, which, which is what I'm just about to get to, to take a, kind of a sales leadership role in New York City. Uh, I'm 23 years old, and uh, this group gave me a pretty special opportunity. And, and so, yeah, like I said, I dropped out of university in February, drank all March, April, and then May 1st, I landed in New York City. And, um, I don't look the same as I did the summer before they, you know, I'm I, New York. I don't know if you spent any time there, but like, you know, in the heart of the summer, it's a hundred percent humidity. It's, it's like the, the, it's like thick, humid. I'm naturally sweaty, but I was drinking a ton anyway. So like, God, I looked like shit. I felt like shit. 
And uh, and I was secretly hiding the fact that I'd become an alcoholic. And um, and New York was a good place to hide this for me. It was there. There was this subculture, especially for the young people. Everybody was drinking. You know, there was a pub down the street from us that had two dollar and fifty cent Budweisers. And you know, they every fourth beer in New York, they used to do this thing called a buyback. And every fourth drink that you bought at this bar, they'd buy you one. And so I could go out for twenty or thirty bucks at night and 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 get you know eight or 10 beers in me. And so I did. And, and, and New York at the time, I don't know if it's this way anymore, but the last call there was four o'clock in the morning. And so I remember things really started to spiral out of control when I got to New York. And, and, um, but again, I was able to camouflage. I was able to hide a lot of this, you know, I could still smile. I could still articulate my words. Um, I could still sell, um, and I don't think the pain was really showing in my eyes at this point, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, so now it's, you know, the middle of January or excuse, middle of July. And I've been drinking for five straight months now. And the depression is so heavy that I don't think I can, I can live anymore. Um, I'm literally at a point where the suicidal thoughts started to creep in. Um, we used to, you know, we, we managed to find our way to get on top of this, this building in New York city. So the place that we lived was right across the the Hudson river to, um, to Times Square. So you could actually see the lights of Times Square across the Hudson river, two stops to Grand Central station. It was an awesome place to live. Um, and we used to go up to the rooftop of this place and on big selling days, we'd go up and we would drink champagne and we we'd smoke cigars and then one night I found myself up there alone and I'll never forget this night. I, I remember being up and, you know, bending my waist over the, the railing and looking down at the ground. And that summer there was a, there was a garbage strike in New York. And I remember seeing just piles of garbage on the ground and really thinking to myself, that's where I'm going to end up. I, I don't know what night it's going to be. I don't know when, but I'm going to throw myself off this thing because I'm in such bad pain that I, I, I don't want to live anymore. And I, it was just, it happened so quickly for me, man. And, but here's what happened and here's what saved my life um, for that pocket of time. That summer, so that now it's July, August, I've got two weddings. I've got my childhood best friend. He's getting married. And then my sister. And so I basically just started to, I had just told myself, all you got to do is get to Kyle's wedding. And so I made it to Kyle's wedding, you know, I drank the whole week. I was there in Victoria, came back uh, to New York. And then I think I had like three weeks before my sister's wedding and I was the MC of her wedding. And, um, and that's really how my life went on for a long time. It was just like, I put these little carrots to chase like if you can get to this, you know, to Kaylee's wedding, which I did, then you can make it to Christmas. And if you can make it to Christmas, you can get to this next milestone. And dude, I was just a 23 year old kid. And, and, you know, the reality is, is, you know, a lot of the pillars in my life at that time, both my parents, uh, my mom and my stepdad had, had retired that year. And, um, and so I thought a lot about them when, you know, I was thinking about suicide because they were in Fiji um, in my mom's favorite place in the world. And I knew they were going to have to come and scrape me off the ground. And, and, um, 
so that's so I made it home from New York and and really I I just I kept this like this drinking thing quite secretive although I think people were starting to notice um you know it was we were still in that era of time where it was somewhat acceptable to be a bit of a party animal when you're you're still 23 years old and so um yeah any questions so far well, well, there's a lot that I, I have some notes. I have some notes because I'm taking it all in and I'm just letting you talk because, you know, we got, uh, we got a couple of comments. Learning, learning. Elaine watching there. She says, I can completely relate to this. Um, some other comments too we'll get to uh, in a moment. Um, I just wanted to, you touched on earlier, you said, I wasn't physically addicted yet. And this is something that you know I always tell people, but I haven't had a ton of opportunity to talk about the the physical addiction to alcohol and how dangerous it can be to just come off of it, right? A lot of people think, you know, you could just stop drinking, but if you've been drinking for a prolonged period of time, it's actually the most dangerous one to come off of alcohol and benzodiazepines, right? So yeah. is there a time when when you became like physically dependent on it where you were like, what did that look like for you? Like to the point where you waking up in the morning, where you drinking, yeah. um, it, it gets to that point. And you mentioned pocket of time for this pocket of time. What, what did your recovery look like? How long did it last? Cause it listen, relapse has been a part of my story many times, just hasn't been for the last three years. And I hope it's not again, yeah. but you know, there's people out there watching or listening to this show who are battling right now. Yeah. Um, and you know, I know there's I get messages all the time. People are relapsing all the time and it can feel like the end. But here we are having this conversation because we've both been through. We've both been able to pick ourselves up multiple times. So it's really important to kind of talk about that stuff too. Um, however you want to keep keep going. You also yeah. mentioned you also yeah. mentioned you also mentioned the pain, the pain in your eyes. I liked when you yeah. said that. Yeah. The pain in my eyes wasn't showing you because that, you know, it probably was, but you just, you know, you weren't even able to pay attention to it because you were probably drinking and, and doing whatever you had to do to not even be able to look yourself in the mirror. For sure. Yeah. And, and honestly, really good points, man. So, um, yeah, I, I want to echo what you just said and, and you nailed it on the head. I don't think people really understand how, um, how dangerous it is to, uh, try to dry yourself out from alcohol when you're a daily drinker. Um, you know, my story at this point in the story, I'd only been drinking for seven months. This continued for another nine years. And so, you know, I'll, I'll get to some, you know, some of the lows and some of the highs of, of this next nine years of my life. But I, I was always able to somewhat manage to, to keep a roof over my head. Um, I was always able to, um, I've been building companies and businesses really since the age of 25. I wouldn't say I was doing it very well for my first handful of years, but I had some really interesting ideas and was able to make money. Um, and you know, I, I, at this stage in my career, I'm, I'm, I'm in sales and in sales, we used to joke and we just, we'd call it salesman juice. And it was just this you know, drinking was just a part of the job. And obviously I drank more than most, but you know, it's, it, it was, we used to joke and call it salesman juice. So I got back from New York and at this point I knew, you know, Brady, that I was, I was a full blown addict. I knew I was an alcoholic at this stage and I knew that I needed alcohol um, throughout the day. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was waking up and pouring two or three fingers of alcohol at this time yet, but it does get to that. 
And, um, but the reality is, is yeah, I'd wake up and I, I'd have a bit of the shakes and then I can physically remember walking through the Calgary airport on the way to go MC my sister's wedding. And I had no booze in me on the flight. And I thought, Oh, you know, I, I can just, I can do this. No one's going to know. I'll go with a handful of days and I won't have any booze. And of course, you know, anybody that's ever tried that, fuck, it doesn't really work. Um, and so, yeah, so then I started drinking just to get through, you know, some of the bigger meetings that I was going to, I hated having the shakes. I hated going through any of the withdrawals and, um, and they were starting to happen. So like, you know, 24, 25, um, I ended up meeting Elisa, uh, actually at my sister's wedding. Um, and so we had planted the seeds that night and, and kind of somewhat fallen for each other that night. And, but- and Keegan, Keegan, this is your uh, audio technician, right? This You're is my about? audio technician amongst many, many things. Yeah, I'm just kidding, because before yeah. the show, we couldn't get his mic working. And then finally it started working. And all I hear was her go, try now. That yeah. was the first thing I heard. Yeah. And I finally got it to work. So, yeah. So she's just, incredible with technology. Yeah, of she, course. She's an incredible human. She's actually a huge part of our company and a partner in our company, Mindful Meds. Um, but, you know, we were kids when we met. And, and she, again, like she shares the story of, she didn't really know she like I was I was able to hide it at some capacity. She does say that she she always kind of knew there was something off. Um, but yeah, so so those years went by. I, I didn't we didn't get into a relationship. And then finally, um, we did when I when I was 27. And I can remember how the relationship started. I remember being at her little tiny apartment and my my lease was just about to be up. And so was hers. And so we decided to move in together and make it official. And that was something that we, you know, we both wanted. She really wanted that for years. And um, I remember the 24 hours into being officially together as a couple, I got this shooting pain in my stomach, literally felt like I was being shot in the stomach. And, you know, I, it was the most painful thing I've ever gone through in my life. And, it turns out that that I had pancreatitis. And so now I'm with this new girl and now I'm off to the hospital to, to, to spend several days in the hospital for my pancreas. It was so swollen that it, was, it wasn't producing insulin properly. And um, it had just literally blossomed up in my stomach. And, um, and so I'm, now I'm in Calgary at the Foothills Hospital She's laying there next to me going, holy fuck, like this is, this is real. And you know, the, the nurses and the doctors coming in and saying, holy shit, you are way too young to have this. You are one of the youngest people we've ever seen with pancreatitis. You've got a serious drinking problem. And if you don't fix this, you're going to die. And, um, and sure enough, I'm just like, at that point, you know, I, I wasn't quite in the phase where I didn't care. Um, but pancreatitis sure, sure enough, wasn't going to stop me from, from, uh, from drinking. I, I figured that drinking, I was going to drink until I died. And at this stage I had accepted the fact that I was probably only going to live till the time I was 35. That's how depressed I was. That's how dark of a place I was in. And, um, so, and by the way, this, this was the second time I had pancreatitis. I, I got the first bout of pancreatitis when I was, uh, down in Los Angeles when I was 23, a couple years before this. Um, and they had warned me then. And then I got my second big warning shot now. But now I'm together with Elisa officially. 
And, um, and I could just remember just thinking, Oh my God, what is her family going to think about this? Like, um, what a terrible way to start a relationship. Can I ask you something? When you, when you hear that, right. When you hear that, what is it like? Is it like, Oh, I'm going to stop drinking or, or what? When you hear that, right. You would think, Oh, here you got pancreas. You got, they're telling you, you better stop drinking. Really? The only thing that was going to stop me then was death. Yeah. Um, right? or, or, you know, if I, if I was smart enough to get into treatment, um, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I, I was, I wasn't ready for treatment. And I think, you know, all of us know, or, and, and if maybe if you don't, I mean, treatment on its own is very ineffective and tr and treatment, if you don't go on your own accord is almost, I, I mean, it doesn't work for anybody. Uh, you really have to want to, to get the help and you have to want to, to accept the help and the treatment and you have to go down this rabbit hole to try to reverse engineer how you ended up there. And the only way that you can do this stuff is if you really accept it and, and you go in on your own accord, which I'll get to, um, you know, when I finally ended up going to rehab in a moment. But, um, but anyways, I'm about to leave the hospital, Brady, and I'm standing up and I'm walking out and I'm just about to go get my, my regular clothes back on. And I'll never forget this, this woman taps me on the shoulder and she goes, Keegan, I got some terrible news. And I was just like, what is it? And she's just like, well, you didn't have this when you came in, but you have a staphoid blood infection and it's spreading throughout your body right now. And you are going to have to stay here in the hospital for the next 30 days. And um, we have to put you on the highest dose of anti antibiotic that's known, that's available. It was their highest dose. It was a drip antibiotics. Vancomycin? It might have been that. Um, but it, it, it's, things weren't looking good. Um, when I, you know, I've been on this thing now for like 21 days. And um, I had this massive sack of fluid in my back. And the doctors and nurses were just like, holy shit, this is going to flood his lungs. And, um, and they really didn't think I was going to survive by day 27. Somehow some miracle happens and, um, and my life was saved and, and literally the infection went away. And I think I was out of there by day 32 or three. And, um, but again, just really wasn't in a position to, to really like want to give up drinking. I was so depressed and so lost that I was still on this path that I was just going to die. And I had like fully accepted the fact that, my life is going to be cut short. And yes, I was in love with Elisa, but I, I didn't love myself at this stage. And so the real love and our real relationship really kicked off after I finally got treatment. And so, yeah, so I guess I'm 27 at this stage. Um, and I ended up kind of getting my health back and getting back into to shape. I did take a small amount of time off drinking a couple months, um, but then got right back into it. And, um, and so I, I got re-addicted to booze. We end up moving from Calgary to Victoria, um, started a new business in Victoria and did quite well with it. But the reality is, is I was super sick. I was taking meetings with alcohol in me. Um, and I was at this stage, I was drinking in the mornings. And so I was, I was waking up and pouring, you know, two or three fingers of vodka just to, just to start my day. And, um, and it was scary. And I remember being super scared. I remember, you know, at that point realizing, holy fuck, I'm, I'm probably going to die. This is probably going to kill me. 
And, um, and obviously Elisa was petrified. She, the poor thing, what I put her through, um, but she never left my side and she, she always had faith that I was going to figure this out. Um, so those years were really rough and, and, you know, I, I turned 30, I was still drinking and, um, and now I'm starting to get a bit more reclusive. Um, I'm not going to the family events anymore. Um, I'm harder to get a hold of. I'm, I'm turning down special occasions with my friends and trips. And, um, and by this time, people were really starting to catch on that there was something pretty serious going on. And, um, and then at about 30, things got really bad and as if they weren't bad enough. Um, but now I'm waking up and I've got no feeling in my forearms. Um, I'm losing feeling in my feet. The, my vision, we had this like electric alarm clock that used to sit on our, uh, on our dresser. And I couldn't even read the time on the alarm clock, like a big red alarm clock that lots of people have in their houses. It was so fuzzy. And so, and this is going to sound terrible, but you know, this is, this is a part of my story and it's, it's, it's a part of my truth. And I was convinced that I had gotten what I was asking for, which was a terminal illness that was just going to kill me and I was going to get wiped out and, and, and cancer was going to take me. And so, yeah, so now like my body's all numb, I can't see properly. And, um, and now I'm starting to realize, holy fuck, if I don't quit drinking, like I'm probably going to die. And to circle back to your point, uh, about how dangerous it is to try to quit drinking on your own. I actually did try to do that. And I started by, you know, just slowly tailoring off my intake and then tried to go cold Turkey. And I remember not much of this, but getting into a vehicle with Elisa, she was driving and we were on our way to the hospital and I had my first seizure and I smoked my head off the dashboard of the passenger seat. And I woke up and I was at the hospital and I had no idea how I got there or what, what had happened. Um, and so things were that bad. I, I was on the verge of death. Um, I had two different seizures then I got back out. And, uh, and I guess that was at the point when I was losing my, my mobility and, uh, and then finally, what, what, what year is, what year is this, bud? This is 2016 now. So we've gone from 2008 in New York all the way up to 2016. Um, and, and yeah, the reality is, 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 um, I ended up getting wheeled into the hospital in a wheelchair. They ran my blood work at right when I got in and I, and again, I'm thinking, you know, this probably isn't going to be good. Like whatever the fuck is happening to me, I knew what was going on inside my body and I was expecting the worst. And, um, and so, yeah, the doctor came in to one of those little rooms in the ER and she's white as a ghost. And, and she goes, listen, like, I got to tell you something really serious. And I'm like, okay. She goes, you're a type one diabetic. Um, we just ran your blood work and your blood sugar was, was almost at 30 um, which, you know, an, an average healthy person, their, their blood sugar, you know, is in this, in their, in a range between four and seven. And she said, if you didn't come in the next hour, you were literally going to slip into a coma and people don't come back from these comas, you know, when, when, and, and she goes, you would have died for sure. And, um, and so now I'm just like, holy fuck. So now I've got, now you're telling me I'm going to live. 
And, and so, yeah, I was hospitalized for four days. Um, and as my blood sugar was, you know, coming back to a normal person's blood sugar, um, I'm thinking about my life and what had happened to my life and where I was when I was 22 and how proud I was of who I was and where I was going. And all of a sudden I'm in this hospital bed about to die. And all I kept thinking about was my funeral and who was going to show up at my funeral and who was going to, and what was going to be said about my life and who was going to be there. And I remember playing that through my head for days. And then, you know, my parents are there and Elise is there. And, and, uh, and finally, you know, they basically just said like, there is no more rock bottom than this. Like, this is it. You bottomed out. And, uh, and I agreed. And I thought, holy fuck, all right, I'm going to give this the best shot I possibly can and go to treatment and, uh, and try to get my life back. And uh, I got so fucking lucky. I, I ended up going to a treatment center called The Orchard uh, in yeah, September 2016. Do you know what? I, I didn't go there. I know the one, though. That's yeah, okay. yeah. Lots of people from East Vancouver end up there and yeah. from Ben. And, um, and you know, at the time, I, I didn't want to go to a treatment center that was based around AA and, you know, built around spirituality or God because – I was so far lost when it came to that, that like, I didn't believe there was anything good out there. And if there was a God, how did, how did God, you know, turn me into this? You know, it, it just, none of that made any sense to me. And, um, and so I entered treatment about a month later, they couldn't get me in right away. Um, and of course was drinking all the way up until I went in and, and it's, that's kind of the standard for addicts. Like they'll, they'll keep going until you, until you walk into those doors yeah, and, um, and it saved my life. I, I, I went for, for 30 day program. I met some incredible people in this facility and it was the first time I realized that, you know, our, our traditional, you know, what we think of an addict or, or, you know, what I thought an addict was, you know, I'm in this facility with, CEOs and actors and models and race car drivers and, and nurses and, and, um, really successful people. And I was, it, it just kind of opened my eyes. And then the other part of it that really was, was impactful for me was <clears throat> every single person that worked in this facility was an addict and had made a comeback. And I just kind of looked at these people and thought, fuck, if they can do it, I can do it. And, um, and it wasn't easy, you know, going into these treatment centers is really hard because like I said earlier, like the whole process is about trying to reverse engineer how you ended up in here. And at the time I didn't understand it. And I, you know, part of me still doesn't fully understand it. Um, but I can remember to graduate the program, the way that they, they had you graduate is they got all the staff members, all of the clients, there's about 60 people. And you write your lifeline uh, on a series of easels. So you're looking at your life from three to six years old, six to nine, nine to 12, and so on and so on. And you're trying to figure out how the fuck you got in there and where the trauma lied so that um, you, could, you could go back and, and, and try to, to, to heal it. And I can remember going through this process and still not really understanding how I ended up there. It was years later that I figured out some of the stuff that happened in childhood 
And, and so I've been exploring a lot of that stuff recently. Um, but here's what happened. And maybe this can segue into, you know, we can talk more about addiction and we can talk about more, you know, about what I'm doing with my life today. But I ended up the last day I was there, they sat us in this circle. And I remember sitting next to uh, a friend of mine named Justine, who is, I was so grateful to be in there with. She was such a, a ray of light. And then another friend of mine that I had met, you, I mean, you, you fast track these relationships because you're with these people 16 hours a day for 30 days. Imagine that, right? Like, yeah. and you're hearing about their life stories. And so you get really connected to people. And um, the director of the facility was in the middle of this circle. And I remember I was, I was leaving the next day and I was really excited and I was really just ready to like get my life back. And she goes, listen, guys, I, I want you to look to the person to your left. And so I look to Justine, I look her in the eyes and she goes, that person's dead in 365 days or less. And I just thought, holy fuck. Like I didn't expect to be having this conversation. I thought we were all going to be jumping up and down and cheering for each other and sending, you know, sending us out into the real world with all of this, um, this hope. And it couldn't have been anything but that. So now she says, look to the person to your right. And, uh, and so I do. And, and she goes, that person's back in one of these facilities in 365 days or less. And, and that has always stuck with me. That, that conversation and, and the way that they, they framed it has always stuck with me. It's never left. And so I remember getting out and really not knowing what I was going to do with my life. I had this kind of starving business that I kickstarted again and I rebuilt it. But I had this dream and this vision of giving back to this community, giving back to, you know, the people with anxiety, depression and addiction, really the community that I, I belong in. And, but I had no idea what that was going to look like. I, I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't want to become a counselor. Um, but I wanted to take all of my entrepreneurial skills and figure out how to give back to this community. And so I did, but in the beginning, you know, I just thought, you know, I'd make enough money to send one or two people a year into a rehab facility. And that was my original goal. <clears throat> and then I, so that's what I set out to do. I, I, I got out. Um, it took me one full year to become you know, the guy that you're looking at today, it took me a full year to get my confidence back, to get my bravado back, to be able to know who I was as a human and, and what value I brought to the world. It took a year to rebuild that. And it, 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 it was, it was a very slow process. Um, but I can remember, you know, getting a phone call about nine months out of rehab and it was, it was a guy I met in there and he goes, Keegan, you know, you remember that conversation that, that Lorinda had with us the day before you left? And I said, yeah. And he goes, dude, you need to sit down. And I was just like, I knew he was going to drop something huge on me. And, um, and as it turns out, nine of the 30 people that I was in there with nine within nine months were dead. There were six overdoses. Uh, there was a murder and there was two suicides and I was just floored. I was floored by the news. I just thought, how can this be possible? Um, and so really 
you know, after hearing that, I, I really started to look at how I can can really take my my vision and, and turn it into reality. <clears throat> Again, it took me a couple of years to figure it out. Um, but eventually I, I ended up, you know, getting a big job in franchising and, and did quite well with that. Um, but also got super burnt out. I, I was at this point hadn't had a drink in about three and a half years and um, was still trying to figure out how to get back into this line of work. And um, I ended up getting out of franchising and almost immediately got into cannabis and um, was able to, to set up a cannabis company that did very well just right before COVID. And during that process of setting up the cannabis company and getting my feet wet with plant medicine, um, I randomly met one of the top mycologists in British Columbia. And a mycologist is, is a mushroom farmer. And so this is now... I'd been out of rehab for three years, three and a bit, and um, was really looking for another tool to help me with my recovery. Um, I was so stressed from some of the roles that I played in my career that I had felt like a relapse was very close at this stage. And um, and I actually remember being on a on a same day flight to Vancouver from Calgary and and uh, and sitting next to a guy at a bar and ordering a sandwich as I always had. And this guy ordered a vodka drink, dude, I can, I can literally see it right now still. And, um, and knowing that that day was, I, I was so close to relapsing and going to the bathroom and crying and coming home and, you know, telling Lisa and calling my mom and dad and saying, I, this is it. Like, I, I'm not going to be able to do this for any longer. I'm, 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 I'm going to be drinking again in no time. And, and, um, and sure enough, you know, they, they were able to talk me off the ledge and I started to, to explore um, really some of the, the most fascinating research that had been out um, around mushrooms um, for addiction and for anxiety and depression. And what I was reading, it completely floored me. It captivated me. And, um, and it was the first time really in my adult life that I had a pocket of time to really put my energy into anything that I wanted to do. And, and I chose mushrooms and I went down this deep rabbit hole of research that lasted four months. And everything that I read was just like literally illuminating my heart to a point where it was the first time ever in my whole entire adult life that I felt like I had discovered what my real purpose here on earth really was. Um, it was, it was a moment that I'd been waiting for. I, 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 you know, at this point had built six or seven companies and, you know, failed five of them, but never felt anything like I was feeling in my heart at that time. And um, it kind of leads me to, to the story of mindful meds, to be honest. Yeah. And, and share that with us and, and what mindful meds is. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll hop in too, because it's played a, a big part of my recovery too. And I notice when I don't, you know, when I'm not using the products, I'm not feeling my best and there's no secret. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about mindful meds and, and, and whatever else you want to say about it. Cause it's so captivating and I always love learning too myself. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it was just like one of those divine almost intervention moments. Cause this guy fell into my lap out of nowhere. Um, <clears throat> I do share this story. It's a long one. So I'm, I'm just going to scrape through it tonight, but, 
um, he came out of nowhere and there was this guy that just shook my hand and looked me deep into the, the soul of my eyes. And, and I was captivated by this human being. And I just thought this guy's interesting. He's got something that I want and I don't understand what it is, but I'm going to, I'm going to learn about what, you know, what he's, what he's doing. And it turns out that this guy was living in a trailer. He, uh, just with his dog, he went through this big, enormous challenging divorce. He lost a, you know, a business worth six or 700,000 with his life savings in it, but yet he showed up and, and he had something that I was interested in. And the way he shook his hand or shook my hand and the way that he, his posture was and his eye contact, I thought there was something really special about this guy. And so as I'm, you know, getting my feet wet in cannabis, he starts coming over to my office because he was doing some carpentry work on the office. And so he was at my place every single day doing work. And so I got to know him. And so he introduced me to microdosing. And this is September 2019 now. And, um, and so I did my work, set up this cannabis company, and then came back to Calgary. And this is where I kind of tell this part of the story where I had all this time on my hands and, and really not knowing what I was going to do. And, um, and I got fascinated with, with, uh, with psilocybin and with mushrooms. And so, yeah, I, I knew that I was going to turn it into a business. I had no idea what that was going to look like. I didn't know anywhere near enough about it at the time. I just knew that, um, that it was going to be something that was really going to take, um, you know, had the potential to really make a huge impact on, on, on mental health and addiction. Um, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so I ended up getting on some microdosing pills and had this like really kind of prolific experience day 11. I remember, um, writing this, this note, this three page note, and, um, in my journal, and it was a phone call to my ex business partners and it was my exit phone call to these guys. And, you know, why it's kind of interesting is because one of the things about microdosing is, is you start to see this change, you know, these changes in behavioral patterns. And you start to create these new neural pathways in your brain and these new ways of thinking. And here I am writing in a journal. And why this is a big thing for me is because I had never until that moment ever written in a journal in my entire lifetime. And here I am writing a three-page exit phone call with my ex-business partners. I stopped writing the note, picked up the phone, got both of them on the phone. I got the exact exit that I wanted to from this business. And that was it. I've never talked to either of these guys again from that phone call. Very toxic, narcissistic type human beings. And um, But that was the aha moment for me where I thought, wow, there's something special here. If I can be writing in a journal... And I spent my whole, you know, career in sales. I had never, you know, pre-written out a phone call in my life ever. Um, and so I knew there was something there. We, I decided that I wanted to, to put this to the test and I needed to buy some time because I knew that no one was going to look at us and take us seriously. And so we were, you know, somewhat of experts. And so I wanted to become one. And so I didn't, you know, I had to, I had to figure out, you know, what the path to that was going to look like. And, and so we decided to put together a self-funded study, a microdosing study. Um, I, I framed it as a focus group, uh, but I took all of my findings over the three or four months of research that I had done. 
And I wanted to basically give the medicine out to 40 different individuals. Didn't matter where they were in Canada. Um, we did this, you know, obviously COVID hit. The day that we were supposed to have this event, COVID hit. The world was shut down. So we transferred this onto an online model. And um, yeah, we provided the medicine for 40 people from all different walks of life. The only contingency was that these people had to, A, never have microdose before, and B, just be willing to fill out a baseline evaluation on their mental health. And for anybody interested, you can go, I have all of this on our website, and you can go and access the study and, and the questionnaire. Um, but it was really just asking questions about, you know, brain fog and creativity and depression and anxiety uh, and mood. And, and, you know, what we ended up doing was running this, um, this focus group for seven weeks. And at the end of it, we, we took the same questionnaire and ran the same questionnaire at the end of it. And we got to see how the needle moved in these people's lives over the course of seven weeks. And then we tallied the data. And the data, when we put it together, was enough to make your jaw hit the floor. It was absolutely amazing. We, we, had, we had two people out of the 40 that came forward and said that the microdosing actually saved their lives. We've never released this, but we have both of their testimonials. And, um, and one day we'll get these out there. But the reality is, is yeah, one of, one of the women that was in this had tried everything for, you know, she had been in counseling and therapy since she was 12 years old. It's my age, 30, you know, five at the time. And um, she had made this commitment to kill herself. And all of a sudden, a friend of a friend of a friend said, hey, I've got this cool opportunity. These guys are starting a microdosing company and they're putting together this, this focus group slash study, whatever you want to call it. And she's just like, okay, I'm going to do this as a last resort. And, um, you know, so that's how this whole thing started for me. Right away, we started saving lives and seeing the impact that that microdosing could make on people. And from there, we got super interested about how we can turn this into a business and how we can have everyday people access premium microdosing products anywhere in Canada and, uh, and do it safely. And so we, we started the path of how can we create this business? And, um, and that process is a long one because we wanted to do this the right way from day one. And doing things the right way in any industry takes time, an enormous amount of effort. And we wanted to be taken seriously from day one. And, and so we actually didn't even bring a product into the marketplace until 19 months after the, the, the study was conducted. We went and sourced the absolute top tier um, psilocybin that we can possibly get our hands on. And then finding the other nootropic ingredients that we use, we, we've got about a dozen other ingredients that we put into our supplements, depending on which supplement you use. Um, and it took a very long time for us to feel comfortable that we were, you know, we were ready to bring a product into the marketplace. Today, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we've got over a million microdosing pills into the market here in Canada. Um, that time that we took, you know, during the study and trying to figure out how to do this the right way to do it consistently and to do it so that it was going to make the biggest impact on people's lives. Well, it really paid off for us because we, to this day, have never had to do one single return 
in the history of our company ever. So we've never had somebody that has actually taken our microdosing guide and the tools that we provide and applied the tactics to their life and use the medicine the way that we instruct um, to ever not see a significant difference in their lives. And so, yeah. Well, I, I know it's made a significant difference in my life. And, um, you know, I just, I, I love to hear it from you because there's people, right? They're probably super skeptical. You think about the coming out of the seventies, the war on drugs, the whole thing, everyone's got this skewed view of, of, you know, mushrooms and, Oh, I'm going to trip out. And yeah, sure. If you take enough of them. Yeah. The, and that could be beneficial too. I, you know, in the last couple of years, I've done that myself a couple of times where I have done macrodoses, but that's not something that I'm like actively seeking every day. And I think some people freak out. They're like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to trip out. I don't want to, what can people expect? I mean, I can yeah. sit here and tell them too, cause I've done it and I know what to expect, but what can people expect? Um, when they, when they do microdose. And my other question for you is, how has the pushback been for you in, say, the recovery community? Because that's a huge conversation that I really want to have. Yeah. Because I, I, I argue with people and, and preach to people almost in, in many settings about yeah. just that. So sure. however you want to go. Okay, man. Both really good questions. I think one of the things that caught my eye, <clears throat> pardon me, right at the beginning of this, when I was going through the research and almost feeling like, you know, as soon as this research is, is out there, people's minds are going to be completely blown because some of the stuff that I was reading, you know, especially early on, this is this is material from um, John Hopkins University. And I remember one of the things when I'm when I was speaking about, like how my heart was exploding. I've got this tattoo on my chest. It says Pure Vita. And I got this for my cousin who, when he was 23 years old, died of a brain tumor. And I remember, and I'll never forget this conversation. So his favorite place in the world was Costa Rica. I've never been, but this is a Costa Rican saying, and, and we got this a handful of us on our bodies in different places and different writing for him, for Ryan. And, but I do remember uh, being 24 years old and getting a phone call from him. And he was petrified. He was terrified about, he, he had been given the news that he had a very short period of time to live at this stage. He had fought incredibly hard um, to fight uh, this brain cancer off and went through all sorts of treatments. And, um, and eventually I ended up getting this phone call from him. And it was the first and only time that I ever talked to him on the phone for, for more, than, more than two hours. This, this call was long. And he was asking me questions like, you know, is there a God? Do I believe in God? What's going to happen to me, you know, on the other side of death? And, 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 you know, he was terrified and I can sense it in him and I could feel the, how scared he was. And so as I'm in this three months of research in the beginning, uh, before we put the study together, one of the biggest things that caught my eye was this end of life cancer patient research that, that they had conducted at the at John Hopkins University, which is you know one of the biggest cancer um, um, focused research centers in the world, and what they realized is that you know these poor people that were dying of cancer, you know they were all so terrified to to pass away, and rightfully so. They've they've just been given this diagnosis, and and now they're 
they're, you know, facing death. And one of the studies that John Hopkins put out was basically for end of life cancer patient anxiety. And what's really ironic was at this time now, you know, fast forward basically a decade, my mom is flying to Toronto to go see Ryan's mom who is dying of breast cancer. So I'm, you know, at my house doing this research for this project and really getting motivated to, 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 you know, get this project off the ground. Anyways, the research came back and they did, there's 57 participants that went and did this study and they did a macro dose of mushrooms. 70% of the participants came back and said they had almost no anxiety whatsoever for, for what was to come. And uh, also 70% of the participants came back and said it was one of the top five most meaningful things they'd ever done in their entire lives. So as that research started coming out, Brady, I started to really think, you know, something like this that is so simple. It's, it's a natural grown plant medicine product. Um, you know, this is being that, that it can make such an impact on people's lives. So that was one piece. The second piece that really stood out for me uh, is this right here. And it's, it's the safety of magic mushrooms. And I thought we could just talk about this really briefly because, <clears throat> you know, you asked about like changing people's minds and, and, um, and of course there's going to be people when they hear about this stuff, their back's going to curl up against the wall. But once you get educated around this, I truly believe you're going to look at this differently. And one of the best ways that you can get educated if you're interested is to go on our website and maybe you can link it Brady after this. Um, but at the bottom of our homepage, we have an ebook that is 62 pages long. It's as far as I'm aware, it's the most comprehensive microdosing guide in the world. Um, our team spent hundreds of hours putting this together. And it, it's one of the pages, page nine, talks about the safety of magic mushrooms. And this was one of the, you know, another thing that I, I learned really early, early on. And then we'll get to your questions, Brady. <clears throat> but as you can imagine, so this study was done by a guy named David Nutt, N-U-T-T. And he's a fascinating guy. He's, he's actually the head of neuropharmacology at the Imperial College of London today. But in 2009, he actually lost his job as a scientist because he came out with this report stating that the number one most deadly drug in the world, not just for physical health, but for harm to other people as well. <clears throat> Could you take a guess at what that is? I don't got it. Alcohol. Okay. And it, and it, and it's, number, it's number one by a landslide. Is it's it? not even close. And, uh, and then from there, it's heroin, crack yeah. cocaine, yeah. methamphetamines, cocaine, tobacco. Yeah. And if you keep going down the list, <clears throat> pardon me, at ground zero, so the very last one studied out of, out of the 20 major drugs in the world yeah. was mushrooms. No one's ever died from taking mushrooms before, ever. The, the lethal dose is something absolutely insane, 52 plus kilograms of mushrooms, um, which would be obviously an impossibility to, to eat. Um, but the reality is, is, is mushrooms are incredibly safe and and, and, you know, to your question, what you asked about to the addiction community, there's something else that we need to know about mushrooms. And so this is some research that's done by a guy named Dr. James Fadiman. 
And I think at one point he was a Harvard professor. He, he definitely was at Stanford. Um, and then, yeah. So have you heard this name before, Dr. James Fadiman? I don't think I have. I don't think so I have. He, like, you know, a list of the top 100 most influential people in psychedelics came out 18 months ago. He was definitely, definitely on the list. Has he been on Joe Rogan's podcast, maybe? He's been on lots of them. He just did one with um, Jordan Peterson recently. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I know who you're talking about. Okay. I know exactly who you're talking about. So he does this great podcast, and this was this this actually is um, something I wanted to mention on here as well. So he does a podcast with uh, Ben Greenfield, um, who is like a triathlete, and he you know he's a big um, big podcaster in that space. Has lots of great information about. Um, nutrition and, and athletics and anyway so he was a guest on Ben Greenfield's podcast recently and um, you know they start talking about you know mushrooms and, and and their ability to 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 be addictive and the way that he frames it is actually that you know mushrooms are the opposite of addiction because they have what's called you know a tolerance and so if you look at our microdosing guide or any, you know, microdosing protocol, all of the microdosing protocols, you have to take days off during the week to reset the tolerance. So I'll give you an example. If you wanted to go do a macrodosing journey of mushrooms on a Friday and you took three and a half grams of mushrooms on a Friday and you did it in, you know, in a space that you, you're following all the protocols um, set and setting. And we lay all this out, you know, on our website as well. And you're doing it intentionally. Um, and, you know, so you do that on a Friday and, and you go and have this mushroom trip. You, you then say on Saturday, well, I, I want to, you know, recreate what just happened on Friday. So you do the exact same dose on a Saturday, but all of a sudden you don't have the same experience. And in fact, you're barely getting anything out of it. You, you might be seeing some color changes and some some, some lights might look interesting, but then if you go and do it on the third day, so then you try to go do it on the Sunday and you try to do the exact same amount, absolutely nothing will happen. You can still operate a vehicle. It won't get you, uh, it gets you any lift off whatsoever. And so the tolerance comes into play. And just to further this point, just a little bit, you know, you know, you, you want to talk about the addicted community you know, probably the most prevalent uh, treatment centers in the world today are, are based around AA, um, which, you know, I, I want to get to in a moment. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that piece in a moment, but we'll, maybe we'll just stay here at Mushrooms. Um, anyways, they, you know, their big thing is it's all about abstinence and, and, and you, you, you can't take anything whatsoever because it's all going to get you re-addicted. So even if you smoke a, a you know, a puff of weed, that is going to be the catalyst for you to then go to cocaine or to drinking, then to cocaine. And that's when the spiral starts to happen. But what the research is showing us is that mushrooms are non-addictive. Uh, in fact, they're anti-addictive because you can't take them multiple days in a row and, and get any feeling from them whatsoever. I can tell you firsthand um, that, you know, in our office, you know, we have a lot of mushrooms. And I have never in the history of this, this process ever abused any of them um, the way, you know, if, if we were sitting on piles of cocaine or if it was alcohol, I probably wouldn't be able to say the same thing. Um, but that, I just find it very important to note that. So 
Now you've got the safest drug in the world based on David Nutt's study. And I hope everybody looks this up because it's fascinating. Um, And you've also got, you know, a a medicine. I like to call it a medicine that is completely non-addictive. You can't get addicted to it. And in fact, when when the very first study of this came out, when they did, obviously all the studies are traditionally done first with rats. But when they first did their first rat study around this, what they did was they put this rat park together and um, in one of the drips, they had a cocaine drip. And in the other one, they had a psilocybin drip. And the rats that would go and drink the cocaine drip would drink it until they died. So they wouldn't stop drinking it until they died. And the rats that would drink out of the psilocybin drip would drink it one time and they never came back to it again. And so, you know, that, that to me is just something that should be noted. Um, what other questions do you have, man? Happy to. I, I want to get into the recovery community and people's perceptions because that's right. You talk about the, you know, abstinence. And I went to rehab so many times trying to fit this mold of recovery that somebody had laid out over the years and have worked for some people, haven't worked for others. And you got to talk a certain way. You got to do this many meetings. You got to do this. And that's great. And I think if it works for people, that's fantastic. But, you know, like, and, but my issue is this, a lot of these, these people who are in recovery and this, this form of recovery, going to the doctor, getting benzodiazepines or antidepressants or whatever, completely okay. We're okay with that. We're not judging you. That's fine too. If that works for you, great. I'm not saying it's a problem, but at the end of the day, those are all mood altering substances. So if you want to classify me because I'm microdosing as, oh, that's not abstaining. Well, you better take a look in the mirror and check your antidepressants and whatever else you're on. If it works, that's fine. But at the end of the day, this grows from the ground. That's being synthesized in the lab. And society, generally speaking as a whole, has such a skewed view on medicines and what's acceptable and we go see this doctor and they write us this prescription and we just trot our little butts over to the pharmacy and yet we don't even really know what the hell's in it or who made it or where it came from yeah right i love love this man and thank you for circling us back to this and i think there is something else that i want to share with you guys and your audience and if anybody from the mindful meds community is here as well um so in january of this year I had been um, off alcohol for five and a half years. And I had for about a year before this been speaking to my close friends and and of course, Elisa. And I had said that at some point I want to revisit alcohol. And, you know, I was in this mind frame that I was, had done all this work and done all this healing and had all this abstinence that, you know, maybe I could take another swing at this. And so Elise and I were in Mexico in January of this year, and we were down there for 19 days. And on day 19, I looked at her and I said, today's the day I'm going to have a beer. And, um, and she was supportive and she, she was just, you know, she was supportive in the sense that she was going to allow me to, to re-explore this. And I had said, you know, if, if this doesn't go the way as planned, then I'll stop. And, um, and so I had one beer that day and I remember drinking it and thinking, um, you know, it's, 
I can turn back now and no one's ever going to know that I had this beer and I'm just going to continue on and, and pretend like, you know, but I was waiting for this guilty feeling to happen. I was waiting for this guilt to take over me and it never happened. And so I started to re-explore drinking starting this January and things went really well for a little bit of time. And so January was good. February was good. March had a couple hiccups, but it was still like, you know, nothing too crazy. April, again, a couple hiccups, but, you know, still nothing too crazy. May, same thing, June. And then in July, we took my dad's ashes back to Ireland. And, um, and I went on a bit of a tear while I was there. And, um, and so got back from that trip. And, um, and quite honestly, had kind of realized that this is going to get problematic again. And, um, and so, you know, we're still able to take breaks. Like we went and did like a 10 day trip to the Island. I didn't have a single drink. Um, but the reality is, is, is I knew that I needed to stop and, and, and I was having a, a struggle with it again. And so just recently made a phone call, ended up in a men's treatment center in Vancouver on completely my own accord and, you know, maybe, maybe I jumped the gun a little bit. Um, you know, I know Elisa didn't think it was, it, it was, it was really that bad at that time, but I think she also knew that I did need some help. So my point of saying this is that I've been gone for the last 30 days. I've been home now for 10. And so when you and I were talking about getting together to do this, I was actually in treatment again. And and again, I'm in, I'm in this totally AA-based model of, of rehab where I didn't think that what I did for a career was going to be very well looked at or, or accepted. And I can tell you, Brady, that, you know, even, even, you know, even these hardcore AA-based um, treatment centers are actually starting to look at some of these alternative measures because, you know, on day two... I'm in there with the doctor and he's trying to get me on exactly what you just said. He's an antidepressant, gabapentin, Valium, something for sleep. And I had just said, listen, this is, this really goes against everything that I'm trying to do and spoke to him about what I do for a career. And he goes, um, he goes, yeah. So what's your company called? And I say mindful meds. And he goes, wow, I know exactly who you guys are. I've been following you guys for a long time. And, and so that kind of opened up kind of a cool conversation with him. And as it turns out, when he's not at the rehab facility treating or the treatment center, he's treating uh, veterans and first responders with ketamine and MDMA therapy. Yeah. And so we really clicked, uh, you know, on, on our second day and we've been in touch outside of, you know, the walls of the treatment center as well. But then, so that happened right away. And I, I just thought to myself, wow, like maybe there is, because it's, it's tough as nails in there, man. Like it's not a place that I wanted to be whatsoever. Like, um, and so I was trying to look at all the positives and, and one of the positives for me was, you know, maybe there's a future for mindful meds to connect with these treatment facilities. And that maybe is, isn't a maybe today that, that, that is an absolute. And, and we know where we're putting a lot of our focus on moving forward to close out the year. It's, it's going to be working with these treatment centers. Um, because yeah, dude, the overprescription of these SSRI medications, um, 
the benzos that you're speaking of, um, Suboxone, Methadone. I mean, these guys are walking around this facility. Some of them are zombied out, man. They can't feel any emotion. And, um, and I can tell you that microdosing doesn't do any of that to you. In fact, it allows you to feel emotion. It allows you to connect with yourself. And, um, you know, I don't know how much time we got, but I'm happy to, to go into some of the details, some of the science, or we can do it, you know, another session, another time. Well, we, uh, we got, we got a few minutes. I, I do want to, uh, I want to apologize for earlier when you asked me, like, can you guess what, can you guess what this one was? I missed what you said because I got a text from someone who's watching and, uh, just post his comment. He texts me a bunch too. I'm not going to share the text with me, but Dean Smeal's watching in St. Paul, Alberta. Uh, one of my good friends out in Alberta and his, his older brother is uh, Stan Smeal, president of the Vancouver Canucks. He's, uh, he's watching. He says, help me out. I just signed up on mindful meds. What do you recommend? And I'm being serious. And before you answer that, he said, wow, this story is hitting home. We'll be five years sober in February, but goddamn, sometimes I just miss that feeling of being somewhat drunk. I know I don't miss drinking, but I miss that being loose feeling. I know it doesn't make sense, but it made to you both. And he says, Keegan, this life you lived is so much like mine. I am proud of you. So he's signed up for Mindful Meds and, and you know, maybe just a good place to start for like, you know, what does, I know there's a, a thing on your website and, and kind of a step-by-step -step guide. Um, but you know, there's somebody that, you know, has been inspired by your words and, and looking for, for some, I call it relief. Like, seriously, like I call it relief and call it what you want. Like my recovery isn't like perfect, you know, like it's still not perfect. I use cannabis, uh, and I use, you know, microdosing. So like, I don't really talk about my recovery a lot because I'm almost like scared because I, it, people are like, well, you're not. Maybe you're not clean. I'm like, well, am I sticking a needle in my arm? Am I stealing your car today? Am I breaking into your house today? Because I'm not doing any of those things. My life is actually, you know, it's not perfect. Again, I still struggle on most days because that's just the reality of what I deal with, trauma and pain and my own mental health. But my life is way better. And I'm telling you that uh, mushrooms have, have played probably the most significant part on a medic, like if you want to call it like a medical medication standpoint, like something, and I call it relief. Like this is my medicine. This is my relief. And um, it's just really allowed me. So when I see someone like Dean reaching out and I've talked to him over the last couple of years, you know, yeah. he's, he's kind of curious. Yeah. So what do you have to say about that? Hey man. Um, so we, we are so passionate about helping people figure out exactly what's right for them. And so anytime, seven days a week from nine to five Pacific standard time, you can literally come through our live chat and speak to any of us. I run it generally on Mondays and Tuesdays, and we would just want to get to know your situation, get to know, you know, what you're going through. Maybe some of the medications that you're taking. Um, we are extraordinarily passionate about helping people get off of these SSRI medications and mushrooms can be extraordinarily helpful for that process. Um, we have, if you go onto the website, Dean, and thank you, by the way, brother, I can totally relate to, to what you just said in, in that message as well about just sometimes wanting to feel loose. Um, and I think you're going to find some of that reprieve actually in, in, in some of the mushrooms and, um, and, and you certainly can. And, and I can tell you, I've got, we've got lots of friends here locally in Vernon that don't drink and instead we'll, we'll take one of our stronger microdoses and they'll find that that just puts them in the perfect place. And so, um, but what I wanted to mention was this microdosing guide that I spoke to you guys about, 
is um, is available at the bottom of the homepage. So when you go to mindfulmeds.io, you go down to the bottom of the homepage, sign up, just put your name and email address in there, and we'll send you the microdosing guide. We're extremely passionate about helping people um, get educated because you know it's we we really feel that the education is the way forward around this. And once people start to read this stuff, it's compelling research that. You know, you can't really put this stuff back in the genie once once it's out of the bottle. And and um, and so we're really proud of that. But just while you have me here, I think the general way that we like to start people is, yeah, by, by figuring out exactly what they're taking, what they're up against, um, you know, because we make products for uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD. We also make products for, um, you know, for athletes. And we, we make products for human optimization. So it's, it's not just about depression and anxiety. We make products and, and, and we have different stacks that can help with many different things. Um, so why don't you, Dean, if you want to send me a message tomorrow morning, I'd be more than happy to work with you through our live chat Tuesday morning. I'll be on there. Um, you can send me an email. I could give you a quick phone call too, but I like to start most people on the clarity bundle which you can see it's, it's three different doses. You get a three month supply and you've got a dose that's 50 milligrams of psilocybin. You've got one that's a hundred and one that's 250. And so you get kind of a variety and you get to see exactly what, how your own body reacts and, um, and, and, and play around with some doses. Cause every one of us is just slightly different when it comes to that perfect um, threshold, when it comes to microdosing. And ironically, I think that's safe to say for, for any medication too, right? Like it's not just the, I just be in case people are going like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't try it because maybe my body's, I just want to remind people how safe it really is. And let's think about it could be food that reacts differently for, for people and stuff too. So just, I just kind of heard like the way that, that I heard that I was like, Oh, I hope people don't think that. So I just remind how safe it is. And, and, you know, just to your point, you talk about athletes, there have been, so many athletes that have come on this show that have shared their experience, but many more, and I'll be honest, who have told me after, and guys who, I know a ton of guys in the NHL that don't talk about it, but they're microdosing, and they're microdosing before games. 100%. And I would be too if I was playing. Of course. I mean, to, to, to get that edge, that 3 or 4% edge that microdosing brings, um, God, I mean, that's a big number to, to pros. I mean, I, I don't know what the jump is from AHL to NHL, but it, it's not that big of a gap, is it? Like, it, no. like the talent level can't no. be that much big of a gap. No. But, but the other side to that too, Brady, just that I wanted to mention that, you know, mushrooms are out of your system in 24 hours. And so what I'm talking about is there is no full panel drug test that I'm aware of. And I've looked deeply into this, especially when I was in treatment recently um, they don't run a full a, a, a panel drug test that can detect any of this. I microdose my entire way through treatment, thank God. Um, but the reality is, is, is yeah, for athletes or for people that are nervous about, you know, is this going to show up on my my piss test at work? I work on the rigs or I drive heavy equipment. Um, the answer to that is no. And the only way that this can ever come up, really, um, outside of uh, a P test, is is through a hair follicle test. Yeah. which is very comprehensive and expensive. I know um, all about them. I had to get a whole bunch of them done when I was, you know, b- before, and that's how I ended up losing my kids. And 
yeah, they, they get everything. But, uh, you know, again, I still like how far are we, uh, how far away are we? And I know there was a, uh, I think it was summer of 2020. I think they passed the first palliative care law uh, type, type deal where they're giving, you know, mushroom psilocybin to uh, patients who are, who are dying. And if we look at history, that's sort of where the, the whole cannabis industry started too. And now everywhere I go, you know, there's cannabis shops and, and I can't, I, you know, and I go in periodically and it's, you know, it's really kind of like my eyes are open because it's people of all ages and this, and, and people are just like finally kind of like feeling free where they can open and they've been using this medication. And I, how far are we till we see mushrooms? Because I really believe that mushrooms to, for me anyways, are the most powerful uh, you know, medicine, at least that I've taken that has left a significant impact because you talk about, rec- you know, generating those new neurogenic pathways um, and, and changed me, right, for the better. And it's not, it's not perfect. It's not we can just take a pill of any sort and, you're, you know, you're fixed. That's not the, what we're saying here because there's so much more. And I'm sure they're in that guide, you talk about intention and setting and all of these things, which are so important. Right. But this is a huge piece. So how far away are we? Are you maybe I should say, because you're in the industry where people can feel a little more comfortable that it's not so much a gray area. Um, it's a tough question to answer. I, I can tell you that policy is moving quickly. Nice. I can tell you that I still believe this is years away. Unfortunately, uh, um, I, 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 you know, it, for cannabis, it, it's it took a, a good solid decade. But I can also say that as more and more research comes out and, you know, we're not just talking about little bits of research. We're talking about phase one, two and three trials, clinical trials with placebo effects that are costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of these studies to put together. It's very, very, very costly. Um, As more of this rolls out, I I think we're going to be moving quicker and quicker. But here's the thing, you know, anxiety, depression addiction, especially during COVID, you know, we saw some of the biggest spikes in, in, in the history of mankind for all three of those. You know, one of the, the, the areas that we focus a lot on, and in fact, just did a massive charity event for the veterans and the first responders. Um, we, we put together a big charity event last month that, uh, that was focused around this, brought in some of the, you know, some of the, some big keynote speakers, Kelsey Sheeran, uh, if you're listening, big shout out to you. Um, and she brought some of some of the doctors that she works with in the veteran community. And um, and it's something that we've been very passionate about. You know, the police, fire and medical. These, you know, I don't do you, I don't know if you know any firefighters today, Brady, but I do. My dad, my dad my dad. That, um, are hanging on by a thread. Um, I know that several friends of mine that became police officers are no longer police officers today at this age because of what they've seen. And so I can tell you based on that, I, 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 we do have some strong connections with people that have in the past held very high ranking, uh, you know, positions in the police force. And, you know, what we're hearing from them is that every police union in the country today is hyper-focused on mental health because they're losing, they're losing their people. Um, not just to, you know, to early because they're quitting due to PTSD, but what's ended up happening for many of these people is after they retire, they have some of the highest addiction rates out of any career path in the world. And, and so there's big problems there. And, and even mushrooms are being looked at today as, uh, as an alternative. 
So we're going to keep fighting for this. Um, you know, I, I got to tell you that the things that we've done uh, as an organization that no one else does, one of them sounds very simple, but all of our mushrooms that you see in pill form today have been tested. And what, what I mean by that is they've been tested for herbicides, pesticides, heavy metals, and um, an excessive mold content. And then, you know, after we do that process, all of these, uh, all of our mushrooms are blessed by an indigenous elder. And, um, and so those are just a couple of the things that we're doing to differentiate our company. Um, but truly, we deeply care about our community. We, we, we care about um, bringing together the most consistent and safest product that we can possibly bring uh, to the table. And, and we have a goal and a mission as an organization to help better the lives of a million Canadians by 2025. And that's what we stand for. And that's, that's really what we're on the mission to try to accomplish today. I, I love it, man. I love it. My dad's a retired firefighter, 35 years retired because of, uh, I think, a big part of it. And he's been on the show and talked about it was the overdose crisis, thinking he was going to go to a call and find me. He was a fire, retired fire captain. He's in the, he was inducted into the firefighter, BC High, Firefighter Hall of Fame or something. He's an honorary captain forever. They did something. He was a president of the union and everything and you know so i see i see it in my dad and dad if you're watching this or when you're listening to this maybe you should try microdosing i've been i've been telling him this for like the last year and we just had uh david vandergulick on the show think episode 112 so like a couple weeks ago he's retired pro hockey player played for the calgary flames for some time colorado avalanche he's now retired and he's a firefighter guess what he's using for his mental health Cool. Talks about it on this show, you know, cool. about microdosing and and how it's uh, it's helped him. So there you go, right? And it's it's we've heard it on this show before. So I think it's, I want to say thank you. We're gonna have to do this again because there's a, there's there's so much more that I want to cover. And um, just before you go, though, I just want to quickly get to a couple more comments. I'm not gonna get to all the Michelle Altas, the raw truth. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, we have uh, Nick's saying reminding people there's a documentary on Netflix as well. Um, it's called how to change your mind. I'm not sure what that's about, but I, maybe I'll check that out too. I think, I think, you know, information is good as long as you're getting the right information. That's um, a really good one. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Sam goes, says mindful meds in the house. Hi, Sam. Um, what? Who's, what is that? Come on, dad. You can do it. Oh, for my dad. I was thought she was talking to you for a second. Cause you're like, hi, Sam. I'm like, wait a second. That can't be your daughter. So is a mushroom. Um, Michelle wants to know, is it uh, just for recovery? Is there anything for pain? And while we're there, Elaine Stirk watching, uh, wondering about sleep as well. So before you go sleep and pain, anything uh, in there? Yeah. So lots of good research around, um, some some larger doses, not necessarily at the microdose level, and some somewhere in between the microdose and a larger dose, um, can be very effective for pain management. And and really, it's about creating those those new neural pathways in the brain. Because a lot of times, when you have chronic pain, your your brain is in this you know just like the same way that if you're depressed, you're in that negative feedback loop. Well, the same thing kind of happens when you have chronic pain. And so some of the higher doses of microdosing, and we sell it, um, is you could look at the Inspire or the Voyage that we sell. Yeah, the Inspire. And, um, the Inspire is, that's, that's the best one in my, my, my I, I, I use that one a lot too. And, and we've had lots of people come back and say it's been very effective for pain. Um, as far as sleep goes, um, 
funny enough, we we do have some reports that that say people are sleeping better. The the challenge sometimes uh, with sleep is that if you take a microdose too late in the afternoon or into the evening, it can be somewhat stimulating. So if you are that person that gets stimulated super easy, you're, you're going to want to take your microdose in the morning. And I would also highly recommend looking into lion's mane. Yeah. Some good research around lion's mane and 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 uh, some helps you know supporting sleep. Um, and it's actually on our radar. We we've got 15 different products right now. But Brett, my partner, is um, he's he's our master that that works in the back of the house creating these recipes and and um, creating a formula for sleep can be very effective. Another mushroom you might want to look into too is reishi. Reishi mushroom has a very calming kind of effect to it. And um, it, it could be very effective for you as well for sleep. Um, but yeah, for pain management, it, there's lots of really interesting research that is that has come out just in regards to just a bit of a larger dose. So I'd point you towards the Inspire and, uh, and the Voyage. Yeah, Sam uses the Voyage for her chronic pain. I haven't tried the Voyage. I'll have to try that one out sometime. But um, I'm it's probably due to send you some. I'm going to make a note. <laughs> you don't have to send it to me. I can buy it. I can support the company. I'm in a different position now, uh, Keegs, than I was when I first met you. I mean, I was not in a good way. I, I didn't even, I think I still had my jail shoes when I was talking to you for the first time. I didn't even have money for shoes till Josh Gratton. I think Josh Gratton felt bad for me. He bought me some shoes. That's how. That's how bad it was, but I would love to support. And I, I hope, you know, I'm so confident that people watching or listening to this are going to take something from it. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, I've already gotten text messages and um, yeah, just also wanted to say to you, you know, kudos to you for, you know, even though maybe it wasn't as bad as it had been before, right. You noticed that you were struggling and you, the onus was on you to, to, pick up those signs like we don't have to wait until we get that bad i heard this one the first thing that i heard really that i remember anyways first time i went to treatment we had a meeting with some alumni that had gone through the program and they came back back in to to run the meetings at night or whatever and this old timer was like my first or second day there and he's like just remember if you fall off the wagon it doesn't mean that you have to fall into the ditches you just pick yourself up and you get back on that wagon Right. So it, and that's what you did. Right. Like we do like that. Sometimes that's a part of it, but we don't have to stay down there. And as yeah. I've heard throughout this podcast, through your story about when, you know, you were uh, unfaithful to your girlfriend all those years ago and trying to lie and cover up in secret that same sort of behavior. You have one drink and you're like, oh, no one's going to know. I'll just keep that. That right there, when we don't speak the truth, that's what takes us back down that dark road. Right. And so that's what I've heard, you know, so accountability, You're, you've taken accountability in your life and you should be very, very, very proud of that. And I think it's just it's such an important message in this show is that if you fall down, get back up. And, and yeah. the sooner you can do that, the sooner you can muster up the strength and the courage to pick yourself back up, the better it's going to be. So anyone struggling, if you're thinking that, you know, you may need some help. You know, do what you need to do to get that help. And I know it's not easy. You talk about being on wait lists and I know what that's like trying to get into detox six month wait list. What do you mean? I don't know if I got six minutes, Yeah. but keep fighting for yourself. Keep making those phone calls, right? 
Got to keep fighting. Thank you, Keegan. I really appreciate it, man. Really well said, buddy. Some good wisdom there. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Anytime. And uh, thank you to your community too. And if you guys have any questions about my life or about uh, microdosing or about what we're doing over here at Mindful Meds, don't hesitate to reach out during the live chat or on Instagram. And uh, we'd love to connect with you guys. Yeah, make sure you guys reach out to to Keegan and Mindful Meds. And uh, if you're watching this, unfortunately, I can't make a clickable link in YouTube. I haven't, maybe I can, I think I can actually do that. I think I figured that out after all these years, but I can definitely do it. And it will be in, if you're listening on Spotify or uh, podcast, wherever it is in the description right now will be a link uh, directly to their Instagram page, mindful meds, as well as mindfulmeds.io, where you can go uh, get your guide and, and get everything to get yourself going on your way into uh what I call a, a, a beautiful journey that's really helped me. So thank you so much, not just for tonight, but for all your support. And uh, hopefully one day we can get together and, and, and hang out and shoot the shit. That'd be awesome. Sounds good, brother. Have a great hey. night, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Keeks. Okay, see you, buddy. That's Keegan Downer out there in Victor- Vernon, not Victoria. V, Vernon, beautiful area. We didn't get a ch- chance to chat about that. But Lake Kalmelka. I grew up up there. My summer's on Okanagan Lake, many of them anyways. Uh, we're going to wrap this show up in a couple minutes, but I'm going to call on a special guest here in a few minutes when I come back. I just want to talk about a couple things. Before I do that, let's hear a message from our friends at Team Issued. Hi there, it's Regan Bartell, the play-by-play voice of the Kelowna Rockets, Brady Leobold's biggest fan. Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being a part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Teamissued.ca, promo code TOEDRAG15 for 15% off. Keegan Downer, thank you. Fantastic show. Tons of, what a great story. Honesty, vulnerability, I live for that. I love that. It's where healing takes place. So as I mentioned, I just want to show you guys something. Three years ago on this day, I was released from jail for the last time I've spent three years of my life, that's over a thousand days of my life behind bars. You mentioned, uh, Keegan mentioned earlier, I've surpassed the 1,000 days of my recovery. I think back to all the, the last 1,000 days, and then I think back to all I've accomplished and all that's happened, all the good, all the hard times, everything. It's been a journey. And I think about those years I spent in jail and you know, those years consisted of currency of things like this, Jif peanut butter, believe it or not. This, this is one of a few things that are jailhouse currency. And I was out for, for breakfast today with Jenna and Johan and DJ McGrath, who was just on the show. He's in house tonight. Going to bring him in here in a minute. And I saw this on the table and I just, I had a moment because I just, I can't even tell you how far anything in my life that I'm doing 
It wasn't even a possibility. I was more worried about collecting peanut butters off of people in jail. And that's what I thought my life had resorted to. I've seen people get severely injured over peanut butter because in that setting, that's how desperate people are. And, you know, this was just sitting on the table at a restaurant, put it on your toes. I just put it in my pocket. And, uh, you know, that's not my life anymore. I'm not worried about peanut butter currencies, but I'll tell you, I never thought I was going to get out of it. I can laugh about it now, but. I don't know. I just share that because when I was fighting for those peanut butters, I wasn't worried about fighting for my life. Monday night, Monday night, one week, I'm going to have Aaron Volpatti on the show. He's recently dropped a book, former NHL journeyman. He's been all over social media lately. He's traveling the country, actually North America, on a book tour right now. We're going to have him. I'm excited to, to have Aaron Volpatti join the show next Monday, I think 7 p.m. Eastern. I have to double-check the time, but stay tuned just for the link. Um, I want to say thank you to Nipissing University. Uh, I had an opportunity to go up there and speak uh, along with uh, Dr. Rob Graham. It's really like a first pilot. We had close to 200 people there, and it was phenomenal. And the feedback we've got that I've got uh, has been incredible. And I'll be honest, it's it's usually the same. It's people coming up to me and sharing their stories and and hearing just how much people are struggling and you know i think it gives them hope to see somebody be able to talk about it and and that's what we all need to do i might have this podcast i might get on a stage i might share my story and that's not what everybody has to do but i think we all need to talk more right to our loved ones to our spouses to our kids especially our kids we need that sense of community for me, I lost that along the way, and I'm seeing like it's slowly declining. I feel like I'm part of a community, but I, I generally see in the world that community is lacking like crazy in comparison to even when I was a young child and my neighbors, like neighbors aren't even really talking to neighbors anymore. I don't know. Before I bring in DJ, DJ, start walking downstairs. But before I bring in uh, DJ McGrath, because he's in-house here. You talked about alcohol. I, I want to really highlight here that if you're drinking, if you're addicted to alcohol, please be careful and never try to get off it alone. My grandpa, my grandpa Barry Stoutenberg, we called him Grandpa Grease. Grandpa Greasy because he was always dirty. He was always fixing things. He passed away from alcohol withdrawal in 2009, 2010. Sorry, my grandma passed away in 2009. He died alone on the floor of alcohol withdrawal. He was 81 years old and he just wanted to stop drinking because he knew that it was taking his life. And 
and, and harming him. He didn't, and he was embarrassed of it. I remember, I remember I went to the hospital and saw him prior to that. He went to detox. I'd been in the same detox just after, just before, I can't remember. And he felt so much guilt, so much shame. And he decided that he thought he was going to try to quit drinking on his own. And unfortunately, alcohol withdrawal took my grandpa's life. And he was one of the, the best people I ever got to meet. And I miss him dearly. So if you're struggling with alcohol, please, or benzodiazepines, please don't stop cold turkey. Seek the help. It's okay. It's okay to, to reach out and ask for help, especially medical help when we're dealing with things like that. You don't have to do it alone. Please don't do it alone. Happy birthday to Dave Gilmore. And can't believe I forgot about this one. Dean Smeal's daughter, Kaya Smeal. Super proud of you, Kaya. She's living her dreams on the air, doing her broadcasting. I got DJ McGrath and now it's DJ, come on over. Come say hi, bud. Shout out to Elaine Sturk. She's watching. That's it, buddy. What's going How's on, Dee? How's she going? Good to be. Good to be here. So we had uh, we had an opportunity this past uh, weekend to go down to St. Mary's, thanks to Elaine Sturk. I know she's watching at the Let's Talk Mental Health event. How uh, you got up on stage for the first time, kind of shared your story. Tell tell me how you felt about that. Because <laughs> I, I know I did at the start. I was pretty nervous, obviously coming to a new province. I haven't been out in Ontario before, and getting to meet Brady for the first time and getting to meet Elaine is quite surreal. And, you know, getting up there on that mic and, and sharing my story, it was, it was, it was, it was awesome to me. I mean, at the start flying up, here's a four four hour flight. I remember writing jot notes down to what I want to say, but at the end of the day, I just tucked that book away and kind of <laughs> spoke from the heart and no, I think it turned out real well. So. Yeah. You, uh, I'm so proud of you, dude, for everything that you're doing. And, and I certainly appreciate it. you had me captivated, man. And, uh, yeah, like it's not easy to do that. And you had nothing, you had never done something like that before. And I was, I was just, my, my jaw was on the floor because I, I one, I was relating with everything, but to see you get up there and just talk about your life so easily. Uh, and, and just, I, like I said, I just related to it. And I would looked over at the, the, there was a hockey team there. Right. And I look over at their faces and, and I think they were kind of joking, like you said, they were joking around at first, but they sure started to pay attention once you, once we both started to talk. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, right? Um, especially from a, from that team not knowing who I was, and and any guy could come in and say say stuff, right? But I kind of talked about real talk about depression, anxiety, and and my past with drugs and, and alcohol, and like I said, and like what you say, Brady, all the time, it could happen to anyone, right? And and yeah, I think that message message got real through towards the end of it, right? They were kind of smiling off the start, and then I got in depth with my story, and it kind of kind of made some made some faces, so it was good. Yeah, and 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 we look to we're gonna look to do more of this stuff together too. But DJ has to go back to Kindersley on Wednesday, um, but we're tr trying to make a a plan for how he can get out here. Certainly in the summertime for sure to do some hockey camps and to do some speaking. But we're trying to figure out what it looks like moving forward before that. Uh, but in the meantime, I just want to let people know if you're watching or listening, you know, uh, uh, DJ. <laughs> Elaine's bugging you yeah, about your accent. I, accent. I, yeah, you do. You, you, do, you do have a, you have a Sasky <laughs> accent. I love it because yeah. I played there for four years. So I love it. I, I think it's hilarious. It's great. It does. I, I actually like, I, I love it. It takes me back to Swift. It's great. It's just so funny because like different parts of Canada have pockets of just a little different mm -hmm. accents, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, if you know DJ's going to be out there in, in near Kindersley, and I think you have some plans to kind of get out there and talk, and you're back coaching and playing senior, and it's been a uh, it's been a big part of your recovery you're now over what over five months, right? Yeah, five and a half months right now, and like you said, braids, it's, it's just little things getting back and playing senior, playing coaching some hockey again. It's awesome, and it's 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 such a good time. And like I said, I've been here for the past four days, and Brady took me out to a rec hockey game last night, and. <laughs> Yeah, should we talk a little bit about that? Or yeah, it was yeah, fun. It was, it was awesome. fun. It was uh, fun. <laughs> it was fun. Like, the other team didn't like the fact that you know we were scoring goals and everything else. But at the end of the day, I mean, at what point in time where can we go play hockey and not? Uh, I talk about this all the time because if you do too much, they make fun of you and chirp you for being MVP. Like, oh, you played there and now you're coming to play men's league. They think you're a show off, this and that. But if you don't do anything. Then they're telling you what shit you are because I can't believe you played major junior pro hockey and you can't do anything. So it's like this fine line, but I don't like to, I don't like to like kind of try to show up, but it's still like fun. Like I still want to go skate. I want to go score. I want to play, but it's finding that hard line. And these guys didn't, some of them didn't really like it last night. Well, and I mean too, right. When you're for me personally, when I'm not, when I'm not trying or anything, I'm the worst player out there. Right. So if you're, we're just mediocre out there. I know you're right. It's hard. It's hard to find the in between, right? You don't want to, you don't want to try too hard or, or, or try too less, right? No, but I had a blast. It's past four days, guys. First time we're out near Ontario and just, just learning what Brady's doing and, and going on hiking adventures and going <laughs> practice. It, it's honestly, it's, it's, it's been, it's been life-changing and just, just where a guy for, can be in the past and you can go today, right? It's I came a long ways and and there's gonna be some big things happening. So I love it, man. I'm I'm so proud of you. We gotta go because we gotta be up early, man. Yes. We're we're uh, we're making a surprise visit six thirty a.m. We are going on the ice in Bracebridge with the U11 South Muskoka Bears. Uh, the goalie from the men's league team, his son's on that team, and he asked us last night if we would come out and. And you hopped up right away. You're like, yeah, we're going. Yeah, we're I, going. I but yeah, it. It's awesome. There's nothing better. Wake up, go to the rink, go make some kids' days yeah. and and uh, maybe dangle some kids like, yeah, we did, like yeah. I did the other day. <laughs> DJ's got a video. He's like, hey, you got to see this video. He came out and coached with me the other day. We were at the final day. Well, for time anyways, for the next month or two, uh, I'm going to pick up and do some more stuff with him. But it was the final day with the Aurelia Hawks girls program. And DJ's got a video. And we played a little game at the end. And he's like, Brady, you got to see this video. I got you dangling about seven kids. <laughs> <laughs> got to get that confidence gotta up. Get right? that, <laughs> got to get that confidence up. Got to get it where you can. Yeah. But it's uh, it's been a blast. And you did such a great job on the ice, too. And uh, really looking forward to doing more of that. And, and thank you for coming out. And special thanks to Elaine, yes. uh, who facilitated, uh, you know, bringing you out and, and the event and everything. And by all accounts, was a huge success. And I think something to definitely build off. So um, I guess that's it. Um, who knows what the adventure for the rest of the night, but we got to be up early. We've toured Muskoka today. We're not only are we going on the ice early tomorrow, we actually have the right ice rented for, for 10 a.m. We're looking for a goalie still, yes. but I think we'll find one. Looking I think we'll find one. I think we'll find one. Anyways, um, that's it. Hockey to Hell and Back episode 116, right? Yeah, 116, right, right on the paper, Deej, right there. Right there. Um, once again, happy birthday to Dave Gilmore. Hello to all my family out there in bc and of course dj's family yeah. out there in kinderson everyone in saskatchewan what's up sask we're coming out there yes we are i don't care we we got to go to sask we got to go to swift current i am going back to swift current Deej. stay tuned for that that's going to be a time i basically got escorted out of that town because they hated me so much i think but um you know i got some peace to make back there love saskatchewan 
Love my family. Hello to my my daughter, Brooklyn and Brody. I know Brody watches this show uh, and listens to you. I love you, buddy. And uh, hopefully we can get out to Vancouver soon, too. Hey, we went to the Leafs game against the Canucks. Come on, Bo. Let's go, Bo. Come on, Bo. Come on, Bo. All right, guys. That's a little inside joke for <laughs> Bo Horvat. We're cheering him on. He's killing it this year, too. Anyways, we'll see you next Monday with... Aaron Volpatti, you're not going to want to miss this this one. Thank you to Keegan Downer. Thank you to DJ McGrath for coming out here. And for everybody who watched live, please share, like, turn on notifications if you are watching on Spotify or listening, sorry, on Spotify. Maybe you can write a review and share it with your friends. Until next time, be kind, always be grateful, and have a great day if you so choose. Doing what I'm meant to do. Struck on your blade, you can follow me too. Give me your ear to Hockey and Heron Back Podcast. Can't sleep, restless week. Up all night, a trailer I need to get my life here back on track. Emotions drained, I can't stop crying. Except my reflection, no sense lying. My inspiration's hockey to kill and back. Pretty leave for hockey.